Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. On April 15, 1922, the New York Times carried an extraordinary headline about events that drew particular interest from the Irish community in the city. It was about a dramatic shooting in Manhattan that had taken place two nights earlier, but new details were starting to emerge. The headline read, Shot as a traitor to Sinn Féin army. Victim of gunman here, doomed in Ireland. Suspected of betraying comrades. Now that headline only touched on what has to be one of the most sensational stories from the Irish Revolution. In 1922, three IRA volunteers from Cork would cross the world to kill a man they had once trusted with their lives. They would finally catch up with him in New York, leading to a dramatic shootout in Central Park in the city. This remarkable story is retold in this episode. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire and this is the 1922 IRA ambush in Central Park. Now the introduction to this episode gives you some sense of what to expect in today's show. My guest is Mark Bulick. Mark is a senior editor at the New York Times and his recent book, Central Park Ambush, When the IRA Came to New York, explores this fascinating chapter in our history. I'm delighted to have Mark on the show today to share this story with you. He gives a gripping account of this remarkable IRA operation in 1922, along with great descriptions of New York at the time. If you're looking to read or listen to this book after the show, I have links in the show notes below. I've also posted images of New York and other places associated with the story to my WhatsApp and Telegram channels. I also have lots of short 90-second videos on bits and pieces from our history there as well. They're also available on Instagram and TikTok, but if you're not a social media person, you can get all that in a slightly calmer world of WhatsApp and Telegram. I have links to those channels in the show notes below. Finally, a big thank you to everyone who supported the show in recent weeks. The new supporter series is out now. If you haven't heard it, you can get it over on Patreon. It looks at the early years of the Troubles. So far in that series, we've looked at the build-up to the conflict, and next week, part three, 
will take the story into the Battle of the Bogside. As I say, if you haven't checked that out yet, it's available at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. Sound on today's show is by Kate Dunley. The IRA ambush that took place in Central Park, New York in April 1922 was the culmination of an international manhunt that had started a year earlier. The focus of that hunt was a corkman, Patrick Cruxy O'Connor, and his life is the best place to start this story. I asked Mark who Cruxy O'Connor was. You'll quickly get a sense of why he would become the target of an IRA operation. To put it mildly, the guy certainly lived dangerously. Cruxy O'Connor was, he kept switching sides during the Irish Revolution. He started off a spy for the Crown. We know that he was getting money from Crown forces. But at some point, he stopped reporting in. And at some point, he joined the Irish Republican Army. At some point, we know he executed a uh, suspected informer, which must have been kind of strange for him, having been himself a spy for the government. When he's in the IRA, in addition to killing the informer, he's a member of a flying column in Cork, takes part in a you know, pretty big ambush at, at Kulavoka, gets arrested a few weeks later as he's going to church on Sunday. He's got a gun in his possession. And, you know, Cork was under martial law at the time, and civilians found with guns faced a court martial and execution. As he was being interrogated, he flipped sides again and told the police that he was actually a secret agent for the British. As an informer for the Crown, Crooksy O'Connor went on to provide information that led to the deaths of six IRA volunteers. Now, some of these people were known to Cruxy O'Connor since he was a child, and this is just one of the aspects of the story that makes it a deeply personal, interconnected history that stretches back to the childhoods of the people involved. He led them to a rebel safe house in Ballycannon, where six men from his IRA company were caught and killed by Crown forces. And these six included his next-door neighbor, Willie Deasy. He just kept flipping sides. It was no surprise that O'Connor was brought into protective custody in Victoria Barracks in Cork by the Crown forces after this. The IRA, however, were determined to take vengeance on O'Connor, an act that would serve as a warning to others thinking about informing on the movement. Now, the first attempt to kill O'Connor was an extremely bold move that would see the IRA actually try to kill him inside Victoria Barracks. This would only be the first of several attempts on his life. It's a pretty amazing story. He was holed up in Victoria Barracks in Cork, which was the center of British power in the city. And he was, you know, basically being held there for his own protection. His mother used to bring him a home-cooked meal every day. And the IRA had the barracks under surveillance, so they quickly glommed on to the fact that this that his mother was was bringing him a home-cooked meal, and they cooked up a plot of their own to poison him. They got a meal together. The, the quote was that there was enough strychnine in the food to kill a regiment. He punished them by wasting their lands and very near all their neighborhood by fire. So she got dressed up in a shawl 
like Mrs. O'Connor used to wear, and she got a basket just like the kind that Mrs. O'Connor used to deliver the meals in. And she went to the barracks and impersonated Mrs. O'Connor, delivered the food. Her instructions were to wait until the basket was returned to her before she could leave, because that was what Mrs. O'Connor always did. So that wait must have felt like forever. But she finally got the, the basket back. And as she was heading out of the grounds of Victoria Barracks, who should she see marching up? The, the sidewalk on the other side of the street, but the real Mrs. O'Connor. The IRA had dispatched a number of men to detain the real Mrs. O'Connor, because obviously for this plot to work, she needed to be out of the picture. But this IRA squad was no match for Mrs. O'Connor. She, she had lost two of her sons to disease earlier in the century. She was not about to lose a third one. She created such an uproar where she was being held that the IRA men just let her go. And she immediately marched off to Victoria Barracks because she knew that something was up. And so she got there just in time to foil the poison plot. But it was a very close thing. Now, it was clear O'Connor wouldn't live long in Ireland if he stayed in the country. And after a brief spell in England, he eventually, like so many Irish people at the time, ended up in New York. I asked Mark for a sense of the city at the time. He gives a wonderful description here. In 1920, there were 5.6 million people in New York City. A stunning 35% of them had been born abroad. I think folks from the Russian Empire constituted the, the biggest group. Italians were second and, and the Irish were third in 1920. Of course, there had been waves of Irish immigration to New York in earlier decades. So it was a very diverse city. As I put it in the book, you know, New York's industry was sprawling. Its diversity was stunning. Its entertainment was sizzling and its criminality was shocking. You know, the port handled half of America's international trade. New York factories produced one-twelfth of everything manufactured in the United States. Babe Ruth was dazzling Yankees at the polo grounds, and Louis Armstrong was providing a soundtrack for the Harlem Renaissance. And Prohibition, which is important, had just begun in 1920, and that spawned an underworld army of colorfully named gangsters from Lucky Luciano to Bugsy Siegel to Mad Dog Cole, who was an Irish immigrant from Donegal. The New York Cruxy O'Connor arrived in was extremely sympathetic to Irish republicanism. This would be important in the story, and Mark now gives you a sense of just how far this sympathy and solidarity could go. It even extended to cases before the courts. New Yorkers raised a million dollars for the you know, cause of Irish independence when Eamon de Valera did his you know, tour of the United States. You know, New York was and is a very diverse town but in you know in the early 1920s Irish Americans were the dominant force in politics in the police department in the catholic church and in the labor movement people in all four of those fields were working actively on behalf of the IRA as you mentioned in in 1920 while Terence McSwiney, the, the Lord Mayor of Cork, was on hunger strike, 
thousands of dock workers in New York went on strike, refusing to handle any British shipping. And the strike spread to Philadelphia. It spread to Boston. It lasted for weeks. And, you know, the law worked in mysterious ways whenever Irish gun runners got caught in New York. There was one case where a couple of IRA men were caught transporting 17,000 rounds of ammunition in a truck in Manhattan. They got pulled over by policemen. As I said earlier, prohibition was in effect. So, you know, trucks with mysterious cargoes aroused the scrutiny of, of the police. Now, they had assumed that because so many of members of the New York Police Department were of Irish extraction, and so many of them were sympathetic to the cause of Irish independence, that they would merely need to explain what the bullets were for, and they'd be let go. But as I said, New York was a pretty diverse town. In this case, they managed to run across a police officer who was not Irish-American. He was Polish-American, and he had them hauled in along with their 17,000 bullets. and. Things were looking pretty grim, but behind the scenes, strings were being pulled. So when they arrived in court, they were just got some kind of minor slap on the wrist. I I think it was like a a $1 fine and they were let go. And as they were heading out of court, they were met at the, the door of the courtroom by a number of ranking members of the police department who apologized for the arrest and gave them a phone number where they could collect their 17,000 rounds of ammunition. So that sort of thing was, was not unusual. Now this left me wondering why O'Connor chose to go to New York. Was it not an extremely dangerous and risky place for an informer to end up in? But Mark explains why he thinks Cruxy did go to Manhattan in spite of all the obvious risks. I think there were probably a couple of reasons he went to New York. The main one was that he had an aunt who was living in Manhattan on, I think it was 66th Street. So he had a family connection here. And family was very important to all the members of the O'Connor family. You know, you saw his mother bringing him food every day. Um, He maintained ties with his family. He would mail them letters even when he was in London. And in New York, and this was, you know, not a good idea because the IRA had the Postal Service infiltrated and they could, you know, get a hold of these letters. So family was very important to him. And I think that's why he came to New York to be near his aunt. There are also a lot of department stores in New York, and he had been working for Roche's stores in Cork as an accountant or a, a bookkeeper. And when, you know, he came over here. He got a job at another department store, B. Altman, and uh, worked as, was working as a, a bookkeeper there. I suppose the other, you know, reason might have been, like, when you think about the East Coast ports, I don't think Boston would have been a better choice for him. I'm sure Philadelphia would not have been a better choice for him. Both, both cities had huge, you know, Irish populations, so he, he would have been running, you know, the same risk there, you know. He probably would have been wise to load himself and his family onto a train and go someplace like Atlanta, Georgia, you know, but he stayed in New York. We then moved on to talk about the IRA plan to track O'Connor down and kill him. Desperate to find the man, they dispatched some of their most experienced volunteers from Cork to New York. 
The three men who were given the job of getting him were three of the top gunmen in the court brigade of the IRA, and they were all men who knew him. They had all been members of C Company, so they had served in the IRA together. They knew him by sight. They were all from the same neighborhood. The the three were Pa Mary. His real name was Patrick A. Mary, but everybody called him Pa. Martin Donovan and 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 Danny Healy. The the three of them had been in on any number of jobs in Cork. They all three were in on the assassination of the police commissioner for the you know province of Munster. So they were the ones dispatched, and they had kind of a personal stake in this. In that, the six men that he got killed when he gave away that safe house in a place called Ballycannon, they were all members of C Company. So it was a very personal, very personal thing, I think, for those three. So they came over in January and February. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As we heard earlier, New York was huge compared to Irish cities of the day, but it was only a matter of time before O'Connor eventually popped up on the Irish Republican radar in the city. It took them a while to track him down. It took them a couple of months. They knew he was working at B. Altman because, as you suggested, someone who knew him from Cork, spotted him, you know, going into the department store. You know, B. Altman was smack dab in the middle of of Manhattan. In fact, it was only a block from where the, the Waldorf Astoria, which had been the headquarters of Eamon de Valera and his delegation when he was doing his, you know, U.S. tour the year before. They staked out B. Altman, but apparently while they were looking for Cruxy, Cruxy spotted one of them. So he started, he stopped showing up for work. And then they were lost for a while. They didn't know how to track him down. Finally, they knew what his old address was, at, or one of his old addresses in Manhattan. They went back there and they, I guess, got a forwarding address. And so they started staking out the apartment on the Upper West Side, Columbus Avenue. And finally, they, they spotted his brother. While they were, you know, staking him out, there were a few times when when they almost ran into him on the street. Danny Healy tells a story about like he was in Central Park and and Cruxy had gone for a walk in Central Park and they almost ended up on the same path heading towards each other. But they finally they finally tracked him down. Having identified O'Connor's whereabouts, 
the IRA now enacted a plan to kill the man. This would take place on what was almost the exact anniversary of the Ballycannon ambush, which had seen six IRA volunteers killed. The killing of the six IRA men in Ballycannon had occurred during Easter week. It it happened on Spy Wednesday, in fact. And so it was a year later when they actually pulled off the ambush. It was Holy Thursday because Danny Healy said something to the effect of almost a year exactly since since Ballycannon. And what happened was they had staked out the apartment. Proxy came out for a walk, another one of his walks through the park. Danny Healy followed him. Meanwhile, he sent Martin Donovan to go grab Pom Murray, and they went up a different street in hopes of getting in front of Cruxy. So those guys would be in front of him, and Danny Healy would be behind him, and, you know, he wouldn't have anywhere to go. He'd be trapped. However, because they all knew each other from home, O'Connor was able to recognize the IRA volunteers on site. This would trigger a deadly chase through the heart of New York. When he got to 84th Street, he glanced to the left and he saw Pa Murray. And he immediately ran across the street to uh, the Walnut Line Central Park. And he started to go north and then he turned around. Danny Healy stepped out from behind a tree, pulled out a gun and fired at him. To his surprise, to to Healy's surprise, Cruxy dashed through uh, the intersection, kept going. He was running. He ducked around a trolley. And Danny Healy is chasing him, firing bullets. And it's, it's a lovely night, by the way. It's a, it's a fine spring evening in April. The temperature is in the 60s, a low 60s. And there are a lot of people, a lot of pedestrians, are out taking the night air, going for a little walk. And so this is witnessed by a lot of people. Danny Healy chases him, hits him twice more. Proxy finally collapses at the corner of 84th and and Central Park West. Danny Healy stands over him, fires two more shots. He's now shot O'Connor four times. He drops the gun because it's empty. He's used all six bullets. Then he freezes. Having shot O'Connor four times in full public view in the center of New York City, Danny Healy had very limited time to make an escape. But as Mark now explains, he was suddenly paralyzed by the situation. Danny Healy, this experienced IRA gunman, just freezes. And what's going through his head is no chance of escape. He can't imagine he's going to get away with this. This is in Cork. There's a horde of people, all these pedestrians who were out going for a walk. They're all staring at him. And he just freezes. Martin Donovan, who's nearby, finally yells, run for it, Danny, run. And Healy snaps out of it and starts running on, on 84th Street away from the park. And this, all these pedestrians who had seen this, they think it's an underworld hit. And they have seen him drop the gun. So they know he's no longer armed. They know that Danny Healy doesn't have a gun on anymore. So he start, they all start chasing him. A huge crowd of people, like close to 50 people, start chasing Danny Healy. And Martin Donovan observes this. He no longer has a gun either because at some point he had pulled it out and was ready to take a shot at Cruxy O'Connor and the gun misfired. So he dropped the gun. So now he sees this crowd of 50 people chasing Danny Healy and he 
figures, I have to put a stop to this. So he gets in between the crowd and Danny Healy, and he puts his hand in his pocket as if he's going to pull a gun. And he says to the man who's leading the crowd, where do you think you're going? And uh, the guy says something to the effect of, I think I'm going back where I came from. <laughs> and yeah, and, you know, uh, Donovan says, you don't want trouble. And so they all turn around. It's a big bluff on his part. He has just convinced, you know, like four dozen people to stop in their tracks and turn around. But even after that, Danny Healy won't get in the getaway car. And so finally, Martin Donovan and Murray and the rest of them leave the area. Danny Healy keeps walking. He's just determined to stretch his legs. He is going to walk. Danny, you know, he, he heard Martin Donovan say run, so he's going to run. And one of the crowd that had been following him doesn't give up the chase. One, he's being tailed now by one person, and he finally gets to a subway station, dashes into the subway station with this guy trailing him, and there's a subway train just leaving the station. So Danny Healy jumps on board, the door slammed behind him, train leaves the station, and he leaves his pursuer behind. It's kind of an amazing story. Now, the aftermath of the story is no less dramatic. Despite having been shot four times, Croxy O'Connor didn't die. He also refused to identify anyone who had been involved and quickly made his own plans to leave New York. Yeah, he was hit four times. He spent a lot of time in the hospital. But after a few months, he was released from the hospital. And I mean, he'd been shot in the back, the side, the mouth and somewhere else. I forget. But, uh, you know, they were serious wounds. And when he got out of the hospital, he moved to Canada just over the, uh, the border from the U.S., just over, in fact, just over the border from the state of New York. He was essentially staying as close to his family as he could. They were still on Columbus Avenue in, in Manhattan on the Upper West Side. Basically, he was staying as close to them as he could without being in the United States of, of America. He got a job as a policeman on the Canadian National Railroad. He met a fellow Irish immigrant and married. They had a child. And at some point, his wife and his, his daughter went off to visit her family in Glasgow in, in Scotland because her mother was ill. It was an extended visit. I mean, I think they were gone well over a year. And amazingly, while they were gone, Croxy came back to stay with his family in New York in the, you know, very same neighborhood where he had been shot of, you know, just eight years before. When they did the 1930 census, there was someone living with his parents in that apartment on Columbus Avenue. Gave his name as Joseph O'Connor, but that was Croxy's middle name. His, his real name was Patrick Joseph O'Connor. He was the same age. He was listed as having a wife and a child, but they were listed as not being present. And his occupation was listed as butcher. And I, you know, I, I wasn't quite sure whether when he said that, you know, maybe he had been shot in the jaw during the ambush. So maybe when he said bookkeeper with his his, you know, cork brogue, what the American census taker heard was butcher. Or maybe he'd switched, you know, occupations again. 
Or maybe he was feeling contrite about what happened at Ballycannon when he got six of his former comrades killed. Mark was able to track down O'Connor's later life, which would see him move back to Europe temporarily. Eventually, later in the, in the 30s, he moved to England, just in time for war, the outbreak of World War II. He spent World War II in, in England. He was a volunteer with civil defense. The Luftwaffe kept him busy. He was living in a coastal town in south, southern England that got hit a lot by, by the Luftwaffe. And then after the war, he moved back to Canada. He was living there he, only for a few more years. He died around 1950. So he led a wandering life after the ambush. Of the volunteers who had traveled to New York to kill O'Connor, Pam Murray would lead the most extraordinary life that would take him from Bail in August 1922, where Michael Collins was shot, to Moscow, where he would meet none other than Joseph Stalin. The three men, Paul Murray, Martin Donovan, and Danny Healy, all joined the anti-treaty side during the Civil War. Paul Murray had a particularly interesting career. He was present at a meeting of Cork IRA leaders at Belnabla on the day that Michael Collins was killed in an ambush there. He later traveled to the Soviet Union and had a one-on-one meeting with Stalin in an effort to get Soviet aid for the IRA. That went nowhere. Stalin was not at all impressed by the art of a revolution as practiced by the Irish Republican Army. He told Murray that he had had agents on the ship that the Irish delegation used to get to mainland the, you know, uh, the European continent, and this agent heard the Irish delegation talking about things that they shouldn't have been talking about uh, openly on a ship. He handed Murray a list of arms confiscations by the, the, uh, by the Free State and essentially said, this is how many times the Free State has managed to confiscate guns from the IRA. Why should we give you guns if they're just going to be you know, confiscated. So he got nowhere with that. All of them eventually, I think after, you know, Dave Valera split with the IRA, they all went with his new party. Interestingly, Martin Donovan, who, you know, I kind of specialized in shooting policemen and attacking police barracks and doing all this stuff, ended up as a, as a police detective himself. He became a member of Broy's Harriers and he ended up dying of lung cancer, I think it was, in, in the 1930s. The other two, Tom Murray lived into the 1960s, Danny Healy into the early 80s, I believe it was. They both worked as civil servants in Cork. Tom Murray had the most interesting career post-ambush, um, meeting with Stalin and being at, you know, Belnabla on the day Collins was killed. I want to thank Mark for his time. If you want to find out more about this story, I would recommend checking out his book, Ambush in Central Park. I've links to that in the show notes below. I'll also be posting pictures of New York in the 1920s, as well as other places mentioned in the story, such as Victoria Barracks in Cork, in the WhatsApp and Telegram channels. Don't forget to check out those links in the show notes as well. Until next time, Sloan.
Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.